The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics Podcast for April 23rd, 2021. This is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you in Austin, Texas. We've got a great show for you today. Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York State, a gambles that the deadbeat dead summer strategy is going to continue to pay out for him. We got a mailbag, including a bunch of people who took me to task, and I will say rightly, for how I explained salt deductions in the last episode. And we've got an interview with Anthony Colangelo of the Main Engine Cutoff podcast about the politics of space and what to expect from Biden's. NASA. Before we get started here, though, uh, uh, we do have some movement after the Chauvin trial verdict on police reform. You might remember that after George Floyd's death last summer, there indeed were two police reform bills that were spun up, one in the House, which the Democrats controlled, and one in the Senate, which the Republicans controlled. And yes, there were things within those two bills that were agreed upon. There was some common area there. Did we see a bipartisan police reform bill passed? Of course not. It was an election year, and that's more important, he said sarcastically. But it looks like we might have some progress now. This via Axios. Uh, Tim Scott is, uh, as he was last summer, leading the charge for the Republicans in the Senate. And Karen Bass is leading the charge in the House. Here is what a bipartisan bill would focus on. Enabling victims and victims' families to go after police departments uh, is what Tim Scott says is a way that we can make progress toward a bill that actually has the kind of impact that I think is helpful. This is kind of a halfway measure as a way of of Republicans being able to say that, okay, we're not letting officers get sued. We're letting departments get sued, which I think in some cases you already can, or I think it's the county you sue. Anyway, Scott also adds that there are four or five outstanding issues from my perspective, and that is the 1033 program, which provides local and state police with military equipment, ending qualified immunity, which if you remember, when all this was happening last summer, that's what we kind of pointed out as the most likely bipartisan solution, considering it is criticized by so many different sides of our political spectrum. Scott adds that a federal ban on chokehold and no-knock warrants would also be on the list. So is it going to happen? Scott says, well, maybe they've been focused, uh, him and Karen Bass, and they've made tremendous progress. But uh, Cory Booker is also a name to watch. He has been engaged in conversation as of their last meeting. I'm sure we will get more on that. Throughout the summer, there was a very interesting, I think it was Punchbowl that reported anonymously that the Chauvin verdict going the way that it did, meaning that Chauvin was guilty, meant that some lawmakers thought that, well, maybe police reform doesn't need to get done immediately. I think that they were kind of assuming that if Chauvin either was not convicted on all counts or was. Uh, uh, not convicted at all, that maybe they might have to rush it through. And now maybe the heat is off a little bit, but I don't know. 
it's not like the heat being on last summer made them do anything. Although this isn't an election year, so who knows? I'm sure we'll find out. But one month ago, we were in the thick of Andrew Cuomo being asked to resign after a series of sexual harassment allegations landed. This, of course, followed a another discovery that Cuomo's office intentionally undercounted deaths in nursing homes during the COVID spread a year prior. A reaction that Cuomo was so proud of, he wrote a book about how well he'd done. But Cuomo is a professional, and here's how professionals handle scandals. They push any kind of decision down the road, and that's exactly what Cuomo did. He understood that rage that burns hot burns fast. And now the official line is Cuomo is going to wait until the attorney general comes back with her report on exactly how many women he sexually harassed. It's not like we need her to tell us that there are women who allege this. They've done so in public with their names on it. But still... The more that Cuomo points to a position down the road, the less the questions come in about whether or not he is going to resign. On Wednesday, one of those questions did come in. He was asked whether or not if the attorney general's report came back saying that he did indeed serially harass sexually people that worked for him and other women around him, would he resign? And he said exactly what I just told you he has been his line before but I, I i repeat that only to point out that you likely didn't hear about it it's not like that was a, a a big headline on wednesday or thursday because there were other headlines because cuomo is in a race to save his job when i first started doing my my jokes about Cuomo and 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 Newsom trying to save their jobs it 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 was mostly a gag it was just like oh look now we can make fun of every public appearance that they do but it's rapidly becoming one of my best predictions of all time specifically in Cuomo's case Because, friends, the dead beat dead summer is in full effect. And one more time, I'm going to recap this. Just for everybody listening who grew up with both parents in a healthy relationship, brag about it. The dead beat dead summer is what happens when your dad screws up really bad. Maybe he cheats on your mom or blows a bunch of money that was saved up. Hell, maybe it's even something worse than that. But the result is a rapid change in behavior, specifically toward the kids. Hey, that video game system that he knows you want, that he'd normally make you wait until Christmas for, boom! Now you got it by Easter. That kind of stuff. The hope is that you really like this new version of dad. In fact, you start lobbying for dad to mom. And that halo, that halo of excitement, inflated though it might be, lasts long enough that the dad can patch things up with whomever he needs to patch things up with. Cuomo has not only been free with state money to New York state farmers and undocumented immigrants, he's also legalized weed in the Empire State. And on Wednesday, the latest gift to the residents of New York State was delivered. The ability to gamble on your phones. 
So all these little things that probably should have been legalized a while ago, isn't it crazy that they're all getting legalized within this window of time, this one window of time where Andrew Cuomo has survived the immediate onslaught of calls for him to resign and before an attorney general report comes in that's likely going to say that indeed he did sexually harass people. Isn't it crazy that all this is happening? Just just all, all at once. Once, all at once. Real quick, I, I got to point out how gross this uh, uh, mobile gambling deal is. The state, New York State, is going to select two online platform providers for the program. The bidding is going to run through this year, and then New York State will have 150 days after receiving the applications to select the platforms. The state is then expected to request applications by July 1st at the latest. Those platform providers are going to pay a one-time $25 million fee to host sports betting and then will be housed at a New York casino, which will pay $5 million annually to house the mobile betting servers. So the casinos are going to have to pay money to the state just to put the servers in their possession. The maximum tax rate said for the set for the providers is 13%. I mean, you got to hand it to Cuomo, even when he's providing bread and circuses for his constituents, he's still got his eyes on the cash. Like, I mean, come on. This is so ridiculous. They're literally just turning on the ability for you, a New York State citizen, to gamble your own money via an app on your phone, an app that does not need to ha be housed on a server in New York State, let alone in a casino in New York State. But no, the state's going to wet their beak. <laughs> And it's going to be a free-for-all because I'm sure that casino conglomerates, Native American tribes, and upstart apps like DraftKings and FanDuel are going to lobby very hard to get those two official slots. New York likes to gamble, legal or not, they will spend money, specifically with football gambling. And that actually benefits uh, uh, New York State because there are going to be some restrictions on betting on teams that are based in New York or play in New York. So I'm not sure whether or not that accounts for Giants games or Jets games, which technically play in the Meadowlands. Still, I I'm, I'm just I'm I'm over the moon with this deadbeat dad prediction. It's so good. And we have no idea where it's going to end. What's next? What is the next gift that Cuomo is going to give to New York State residents? When will this deadbeat dad summer come to an end? They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. You can always write into the show uh, with our mailbag segment, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. I got a bunch of these. I got a bunch of these, but this was the best one. This is from Andrew. I'm not sure if you were intentionally oversimplifying the salt taxes or you just got it wrong, but number one, you don't deduct salt from what you pay the Fed. If you have itemized deductions in excess of the standard deduction, 12,400 single or 24,800 for uh, married filing jointly, you subtract that from your adjusted gross income. Eventually, you multiple this lower number by your tax bracket and that's what you owe. So, with no limit on salt, if somebody itemizes and is in the highest tax bracket, a $1,000 or $1,000 increase in salt would result in 1,000 times 35%. That would equal $350 less owed to the federal government. Number two, 
This 100% applies to people who have their taxes withheld. They would potentially get a larger refund from the federal government. Number three, I think you drastically underestimate the number of people this would actually help. This would help all homeowners in states that have property tax and income tax. What's the property tax in your new home? I live in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, so I also have to pay a 4.5% flat tax on my income. My itemized deduction with SALT capped were $24,345, which is below the standard deduction. Without a cap SALT, my itemized deductions would have been $38,461. I would have saved $3,000 plus in taxes to the IRS. Yes, people with more money will get a bigger cut, but they could raise the cap to twenty dollars or $30,000 and it would still help the middle class. People in the highest tax brackets will almost always save more money when the IRS lowers the tax. That's just how math works. Andrew then said I should have tax people on when I'm discussing tax stuff. Uh, you're probably right, but I didn't because I mostly wanted to talk about the political fallout of it. However... If you want to understand how the SALT tax deduction works, please don't listen to me. Please listen to people like Andrew or go do your own research. But I did want to correct what I did get wrong, which uh, uh, I said it wouldn't really affect people who had their taxes withheld. That obviously is not true. There we go. Adam writes, I do think that most people overestimate how far down the economic ladder the current SALT cap affects. There is a large amount of middle-class people that were impacted by the introduction of the cap. I live in a 1,400-square-foot, three-bedroom house in western New York outside of Rochester. I live in a town with the lowest property taxes in my county. I hit the SALT cap every year, and my tax return has been reduced by about $2,000 a year as a result. I would not support any New York politician who wasn't pushing for its repeal. AOC can get away with it because everybody rents in the city. And that's all we had on salt. So there we go. There are people that are pushing for the idea that this isn't just a rich person thing. And I screwed up on the other stuff. Moving on. Woody. He writes, hey, jury, I'm listening to season two of Blowback. I quite enjoyed season one of Iraq. This season is on Cuba. I'm only halfway through the first episode, but so far the host, the host seems to be positioning the communist government of Cuba as the good guys fighting American imperialism. My instinct is to be skeptical of anyone lauding Marxism or Leninism, but the podcast has earned enough goodwill from season one that I want to hear them out. I'm writing because I was hoping as a native Floridian, you could shed some light as to how the left tends to view Cuba. Has the left always stood behind Cuba? If not, is the attempt to rehab the image of communist Cuba a reaction to poor democratic showings in Miami-Dade? Can you show, uh, uh, can and should we find places to praise Cuba or would always amount to praising Gaddafi or a Pol Pot type regime? I cannot speak for Cubans. I cannot speak for Miami Cubans. I cannot speak for any Cubans. All I will say is growing up in South Florida, defending the Castro regime was not something that was done. It, it, it is taken very seriously by the Cuban community in South Florida uh, because they were directly affected by it. I tend to be skeptical of uh, folks who, who want to explain that the communist regime in Cuba was either not all that bad or uh, uh, misinterpreted, mostly because I was shaped by the reaction to people uh, that escaped it. And it doesn't seem to me to be a great place to live when you regularly see flotillas of humans risking it all, including their own lives, to escape it. So, that's my opinion. As for whether or not the left has always lionized Cuba, I've always thought of that as more of a progressive 
socialist kind of left sort of idea. Um, maybe that's become more mainstream though. So there's that. Scale writes, forever lockdown. What did I tell you? Oh boy, I gone done told you, son. And he linked to me a Bloomberg uh, opinion piece saying, uh, when when will COVID end? We must start planning for a permanent pandemic. It's starting, dude. The permanent lockdown. They're starting the spin. They're actually going to do it. Lockdowns for decades. Jesus, everything I said would happen is coming true. Nostradamus Cassandra Magic 8 Ball over here has all the answers. While scale, I appreciate your faith in one Bloomberg uh, op-ed being a sign of a global cabal that is going to lock us down. I, I don't quite think that that's where they would look to uh, put the tip of that spear. I mean, they would save that for the Times op-ed section, obviously. I do think that there is a a a, a very big kernel to what you are saying there, and that is. Freedoms that are given away don't come back easily. They come back with friction. And while there are some uh, governors and and, uh, city officials that are pushing more, some would think recklessly fast, to resume things that uh, existed pre-pandemic, the places that haven't, I do think will have to fight for them if their citizenry wants it. Because what I don't think is going to happen, and we might have confused ourselves into thinking was a reality, is that at some point someone's going to blow a horn and COVID's going to be over. That's never going to happen. We're all going to have to make a decision on when we are able to resume our lives. And when we want the freedom to be able to do the things that we considered our lives. Miravina sent me a exhaustive list of commonly used drugs with many different side effects that sounded bad. She continued, I can carry on like this all day. Every drug that is introduced into our system has the opportunity to have some kind of adverse effect on us. We have a saying in the business that says the benefits outweigh the risks. FYI, to anyone, this has always been a doctor philosophy because, like I said before, it's a risk-giving medication. Nothing is foolproof, and everyone's system is different. We are taking this philosophy and throwing it out the window for, honestly, a very small number of people. I could go down the rabbit hole of opioids that, frankly, way too many patients are on. Anyway, I'm going to send this to counter the writer on Friday's email. The question that needs to be asked is, does the vaccine uh, with the with any of these vaccines is do the risks outweigh the benefits? And so far, the evidence we have to say is no. Well, said Miravina. Steve writes, Germany has paused the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine for uh, for women dying from blood clots. Is it really sensible for healthy women who can survive covid to play the Russian roulette game? Of blood clots. Steve, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna note you, I'm gonna editorial note you. Germany did not pause the AstraZeneca vaccine. They offered a qualification that women under 60 should not take the vaccine. And if they do, they need to specifically sign a waiver or whatever that lets them know that they are taking this risk. But it, but it shows me that, that we do have a real problem here. There's kind of this funhouse mirror effect with how we talk about these blood clots. Because, yes, there is a risk. But even to your metaphorical example of Russian roulette, Russian roulette is one out of six. This is way less than one out of six. So you're not playing Russian roulette. You are playing something that is, you're playing, let's walk outside and see if we get hit by a car. Like, like there's, this is not the same thing. We can't equate the existence of any problem with a statistically 
significant problem. Now, as to what Germany did, that's fine. Do that. If you're going to, to, out of an abundance of caution, put some kind of qualifier on it, then put some kind of qualifier on it. But keeping it out of commission for this long only worsens its reputation, in my opinion. And I don't know what we're going to learn in these intervening days that we don't already know. Sean writes, the GOP sure isn't happy about all these companies talking about voting rights, and they'd love to punish them. Really, they just want to talk about punishing them. If they were serious, taxing corporations would be a great punishment. The Dems have a proposal right now to tax corporations. In the same breath, the GOP praises and vilifies companies. These aren't, uh, even more important, big, scary tech companies. There's some room for compromise here to hike the corporate tax rate, but that isn't grandstanding, so it won't happen. Oh, well, sucks to be us citizens. I do think that that there is common ground between the progressives and 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 the yeehaw populist Republicans on being more hostile to corporate America. What the Democrats are going to find out is that it's only going to be the progressives because the rank and file Democrats are rapidly kind of becoming, they're inheriting the mantle of the party of big business. So good luck. Finally, Colin writes, I agree with you. Dr. Fauci really fumbled the bag by not taking your COVID shots equals body shot slogan to help get things back on track. Today, my wife and I are both fully immune and vaxxed. And to celebrate, I did a body shot of vodka offer. The best part of 2021, right above my first kid being born. Colin, congratulations. You've written my favorite email of all time. I love you. I love your wife. Uh, 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 bless your child. You've made me so happy. If you dare to make me as happy as Colin did, you can email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. If you would like to support this program, there's only one, well, there's a lot of ways to do it, but there's only one way that you can get bonus content. It's a bonus podcast on Monday, a bonus podcast on Thursday, delivered to you in a custom RSS feed that you put in the podcatcher of your choice once. No username, no password, set it and forget it. You enjoy, if you are with us for a year, 104 bonus podcasts. That's a lot of bonus podcasts. And in in this era, man, this is the time when news breaks and, and it breaks in between when our normal schedule was. This, you know, these, these, these PX3 extras, they are vital if you want to know my opinions as soon as news breaks. So do me a favor, head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $3 level and you will get two bonus podcasts a week, 104 bonus podcasts, bonus ones, not regular ones. Just This is just the bonus, 104 bonus podcasts if you are with us for an entire year. Thank you to all of our patrons that make this show possible. And I can't wait to see so many more of you in the coming weeks. Space! For a subject that normally unites the internet in the zeal of exploration and the radness of the cosmos, space has been testy lately. Divisive issues like Space Force and figures like Elon Musk have brought more attention to the stars than any other moment in my lifetime, but it's not always positive. Meanwhile, the results are undeniable. 
Private American rockets have given NASA an alternative over the military-industrial complex, which previously dominated. Last year, we saw an American rocket take Americans into space, something that hadn't happened since the retirement of the space shuttle. But what's next? Will Biden have the same zeal for private industry that Trump did? What does this mean for NASA? For answers to all that, we welcome Anthony Colangelo of the Main Engine Cutoff podcast. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Justin, it is awesome to be here as someone who has listened since this was a segment on the jury show way back yonder. <laughs> uh, it's really cool to be here. Wow. Me. That is that is that is a deep cut. I, yeah, I, I definitely back, appreciate I you. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's so funny. You focus on doing it for so long that I can't even remember you how long that. ago that was. So <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate that somebody's keeping it alive. Uh, uh, your podcast is Main Engine Cutoff, and you focus on space and everything that's kind of happening right now, which is very exciting for folks who do not follow the 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 world of space. Uh, how would you describe where we are currently over the last five or 10 years? We are in the golden era of space right now. There are so many things in motion that are different ways of doing things than had been done historically. And many of them have completely changed different segments of the industry. The most popular one being, you know, SpaceX and what they've been doing with launch. Um, but on the satellite side, we're in the era of small sats now that have totally redefined like the economics of launching satellites. And uh, there's a lot of talk about constellations these days. So constellations that SpaceX run like Starlink. Uh, there's other out there like OneWeb. And they're focused on satellite internet. And that is a new burgeoning section of the industry. So you've got all of those, you know, like commercial factors. But then you've also got on the uh, like the more expo exploration side of things, uh, we just flew a tiny helicopter on Mars that is only possible because of this miniaturization that has went into space tech over the last couple of years. So we're in a new era on pretty much every angle of the industry that you could really define. Um, and then there's also this other layer of, of politics around it that I'm sure we'll get into, both civil politics with what NASA is involved in today and what the other international uh, space agencies are involved in today. But then the military side as well is... Um, and in an interesting spot where the U.S. Space Force exists now, China is ramping up what they're doing in space. There are some new factions being drawn in the geopolitics of space. Um, so it is a really interesting time period to be involved in it and to be looking at all these different trends that have really come to the head since you know, the end of the shuttle era was pretty stagnant. Um, and since then, it's, it's, it looks wholly different than it did 10 years ago. So let's, let's focus on NASA. Right. Because NASA is something that had become kind of a cause celebrity specifically on, well, I don't want to say exclusively the left, but, but, but I think that the left focused on it a lot after the, you know, specifically after the, the decommissioning of the space shuttle that like, this is what happens when we take our eyes off the stars and we are, are we're not funding NASA enough and not NASA's not doing things that are inspirational. We haven't sent a, a, an American to space. What does the proliferation of a lot of these private uh, rocket companies and private space companies that have uh, uh, popped up around it, how does that affect what NASA does compared to the reasons why NASA wasn't doing things before? Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. You know, um, I think there's there's a lot of NASA that in that era of the shuttle ending and everything turning over that was run off of, I don't want to say nostalgia, but but momentum. Um, there was a huge workforce of people that kept the shuttle running. And at that time, when it was shut down, um, there was a lot of thought of like, well, what are all these people going to do now? And I remember uh, there's a, you know, I was friends with somebody on an internet forum somewhere that had worked at uh, pad 39A where the space shuttle launched from. And he had a really, you know, pulling at the heartstrings post one day when he got a job with SpaceX and ended up revitalizing 39A back into a, an active launch pad with SpaceX now. And his story was one of, you know, well, I didn't know what I would be working on. And just a couple of years later, here I am back and we've revitalized this pad for the heaviest launch vehicle that is flying today, the Falcon Heavy. And I think that lack of vision 
on an industrial level to know like, well, if NASA is not doing the shuttle, these people will just not have jobs anymore. I think that's that's really silly. Uh, there there are a lot of places that these people have went to and taken their talents and they've went to places like SpaceX or Blue Origin, even United Launch Alliance, these launch companies that are doing that work and are able to do the same jobs there. And then instead of NASA having to run that program, they're offering launch services at a better rate to NASA than NASA could have done internally. So you know, the, the idea that we needed to keep that shuttle program running, it, it failed to contact the reality that there's interest in making rockets go to space in, in other economic areas. Yeah. And these people have, have moved into that sector. So a lot of the workforce management stuff, I think, sometimes uh, muddies the waters about like what NASA should be doing. And the, the common argument, I'm using launch as a, an example because it's so obviously evident. Um, the example is there, right, that there are these commercial companies who can do things better and more efficiently than a NASA-run program can that can send things to space for much cheaper and sell those as services to NASA. You know, they're not building their own airplanes. They're not building their own mail trucks in the U.S. government. They're buying them from commercial companies. Why isn't space just like that? Um, so that kind of push and pull about what is a service to the government and what does the government have to run, that is the common thread in the last 10 years. It started with launch. It is now up to um, another good example would be imaging, Earth imaging. Uh, do we have to have NOAA run every single imaging satellite in orbit or can we have companies like Planet uh, image the entire Earth every day with small satellites and sell that data to the government as they need? Um, there's so many different areas where that is the model of like, okay, this thing that the government wants, that's a customer for us, but we could also have a bunch of other customers, be it other governments, commercial entities, let's do that thing as a service, and then NASA gets a better deal on that. Um, we're now getting into the era where like buying lunar landers for people going to the lunar surface, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute, that is starting yeah. to look like something that could be a service. So that is the argument that you'll hear a lot if you're tuned into these conversations. Now, here's the thing that kind of bugs me with that is that I do think that we have a a verbal crutch when we talk about a lot of governmental things, but space is a, a, a specifically acute problem where we say NASA versus these private companies that are, that are coming up, right? The idea of like, oh, well, NASA could build it. NASA could do this, or the government could do this. Like you said, the, the, the uh, NOAA can put up a satellite that's going to take pictures. But the reality is, that it's not like the engineers at NASA are buying plywood and aluminum and building these things themselves necessarily. Obviously, like JPL and stuff like that do for, for some things. But when you're talking about launch or rockets, what they're doing is going to the same contractors that the United States normally buys missiles from. And those are the military industrial complex, Boeing, Lockheed, Northrop Grumman. Uh, they are the ones that are building this. So when we, when I, I feel like there is this very frustrating verbal uh, idea that it's like, okay, either NASA's building it themselves or we're buying it off the rack. When in reality, we're kind of always ordering, you know, uh, uh, you know, picking things to order. NASA's always going to do that. The question is whether or not we widen that out to a group of people other than the three that have always done it, right? That is exactly right. Yeah, if, uh, I don't think a lot of people know this, but the ISS, the International Space Station, uh, the prime contractor there is Boeing. You know, they, they make a couple hundred million dollars a year running that program. Uh, and they're the prime contractor that needs to handle the structures of the ISS and the functionality of many pieces. Of course, they work in concert with all the other companies and countries that made pieces of the ISS, but they're the prime contractor on that. Um, so that certainly is the case, but I, I do think there's a difference in um, the model that is that these NASA projects are taken on. There's the model where, yes, NASA says we would like a lunar lander in the 1960s, and they go to Grumman at the time, and they build them one to spec. NASA owns that piece of property, and then they have a lander to go to. Or in the 70s, we built the shuttle. Uh, it was a conglomerate of, of companies over the years, North American Rockwell, uh, on and on and on. But they bought these shuttles from those companies to operate themselves. Whereas the difference is, in today's world, they're not buying these SpaceX vehicles that are going to the space station. They're buying transportation to space, or they're buying cargo they to are, the they ISS. They are leasing, okay, It's yeah. like a ride. So that, they're that, literally that is, ordering that ride is, shares yeah. to the ISS. They're not owning that vehicle. So that that is a key difference in the uh, interaction between the organization, NASA, and the companies that they work with. That is a functional difference, and it does deserve to be mentioned. Although I think for what 
the reality of what people think about space, it wouldn't matter. I mean, if you if you told people, oh, no, do you know that Boeing actually owns the space shuttle? Nobody would care because the space shuttle is the space shuttle. It is paid for by NASA and it does space shuttling. Exactly. Things. Yeah, it's it's uh, and it's something that, you know, to their credit, why would they care? I don't know why people would necessarily care about that unless they're, you know, me or you. So let me let me get get to this point. And and I uh, if, if people haven't been able to pick up on this, like I, I'm somebody that has folk of, you know, followed this for a very long time, specifically the story of SpaceX. And at the point that the space shuttle was decommissioned, SpaceX was far from being a sure bet. In fact, it was very close. It was like one failed launch away from bankruptcy before uh, uh, they were able to kind of turn that around and become the company that they are today. But when you say the United Launch Alliance. Can you please explain for people <laughs> what that means? Oh, how this is a crazy story. If you really want to go down the rabbit hole on this. Let's go. Uh, let's go. So the United Launch Alliance is a, a joint alliance between Boeing and Lockheed Martin. The two, you know, creme de la creme uh, military industrial complex. If you go and look at, you know, Stark Industries logo in the Avengers, it's like, oh, it's just Boeing and Lockheed put together. Uh, that is the model there. So in the late 90s, early aughts, they were the only two companies launching to space. Uh, it was very expensive. It got to a point where the reason that they made a uh, joint venture was there was going to be a huge lawsuit because one of them got like sensitive paperwork from the other and the government said, mm, we don't want to deal with that. How about you two just merge all of your launch infrastructure and we'll pay you a lot of money per year to be available for us to launch spy satellites and classified communication satellites and all this kind of stuff. Um, so since the early to mid-aughts, they've been um, really the, the anchor launch provider to the U.S. government. And, uh, you know, then when SpaceX came along and started challenging for them uh, for those launches, that's when there was a lot of congressional wrangling and wrangling within the Department of Defense. Uh, lawsuits where SpaceX fought a lawsuit that was eventually dropped before anyone was, uh, you know, allowed to say who was right or who was wrong. But eventually SpaceX started winning some contracts away from this very large entity that um, I think is sometimes unfairly maligned uh, in the modern era. I think if you look back, you know, 15 years ago, they were definitely doing some shady things. Like I said, they are together because they were trying to get around a lawsuit. Um, but in today's era, things have shifted a lot. There's still a very... Uh, very well-respected launch provider, and they are the key uh, partner in this U.S. Space Force launch contracts that uh, SpaceX and ULA bid for. Those they actually won sixty uh, percent of the upcoming launches from the Space Force, and SpaceX won forty percent for another variety of reasons that we can get into if you care to. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I don't think we need to particularly need to get into into, in, 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 into into the contracts yeah. on contracts on contracts, but. I do just want to point out that when people hear these names, like just understand the that the United Launch Alliance stands for the military industrial complex. And I'm not saying that they don't have experience in building rockets and putting them into space. They have a tremendous amount of experience. Some might say experience that was exclusively provided to them because as Dwight Eisenhower warned when he coined the phrase military industrial complex, that you are just going to reward the same companies over and over and over and over and over and over again, which creates a, a harmful feedback loop, which I'm happy to see challenged at the very least by companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX. But but let's get into some of the news that happened this week. Uh, there is going to be a new head of NASA. Biden has uh, uh, put forth former Senator Bill Nelson for the post. Uh, his hearing was on Wednesday. Yeah, it was this morning, actually, as we record. Well, yes, yeah. so yeah. well, yeah, 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 this, this, yeah, this will be aired on, <laughs> on, on Friday, but, but it aired on Wednesday or sorry, the, the hearing happened on Wednesday. It was an incredibly boring hearing. Um, these things by nature are very boring. You don't go to these hearings for content. You go for posturing and you understand the questions that are being asked, you know, because the, the content of the hearing, this is here, I'll give you an example of the structure. Uh, yeah. 
Justin, Turks and Caicos is a wonderful place to visit with my family. I know I've been there many times. I would really like to go next March. Would you promise we don't have a meeting next March so I can go to Turks and Caicos with my family? And you're like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then you move on. Like, that is the structure. Yeah. Uh, and so you don't go to it for what is actually being said. You just go to see who's asking what questions. So in this case, he's in front of the Commerce Committee. Um, the head of the Commerce Committee is uh, Maria Cantwell, who is a senator from Washington. So the only time that was really interesting of uh, this hearing was when, you know, she was asking about this recent award where SpaceX won a very large contract uh, to take astronauts down to the lunar surface in a handful of years. And uh, Blue Origin, being uh, headquartered in Washington State, uh, was something that Maria Cantwell was hoping to see in that, uh, you know, selection. So she asked some questions about that and about the nature of competition. Generally, uh, you know, very boring hearing, but... Bill Nelson, I think, you know, as you, a, a Florida man yourself, you have a long history yeah. with Bill Nelson. He is a creature of, you know, Congress generally. He was in the House for a while. He was in the Senate for a while. When he was in the Senate, I guess it was when he was in the House, he got uh, flown to space on the space shuttle and was derided yes. as being named Ballast Bill at the time by his crewmates because that was the role he served on the flight. Um, so he's, you know, someone who has a long history in space. Uh, and I struggle to know exactly where he's going to land because you might think he's going to have a very parochial, old, spacey kind of take on the industry because of his Florida roots. But, you know, he's being taken from a position where parochial interests matter and he's being thrown to the head of, of NASA in an entirely different environment than he operated in when he was in Congress. Um, and there's, you know, Congress likes their districts. They really like to bring the bacon home for their districts. But what they love more yeah. is standing next to a winner and saying, I wasn't there when we went to the moon and somebody landed on the moon and look at me in this photo. So I do think he's going to embrace the new industry more than he has in the past. Um, but I guess that's yet to be seen once he can actually well, let, start let, making let's, statements. Let's, let's go ahead and clear that up because what my fear is, is that the previous head of NASA was very friendly to private space interests. And and that there's a reason why we had one of the few feel-good moments of 2020 was Americans going up to space on an American rocket. Uh, so like I, that, I, I think, is something that I hope is not curtailed by way of Bill Nelson, who at least if you believe some of the scuttlebutt about him is not just parochial in terms of being old school, but is old school in the point that no, the contract should go to the people that we've always given contracts to, AKA Boeing and Lockheed. And that would hamper the ability for more exploration, more uh, uh, space achievements to happen, which in my opinion, are supercharged by the fact that there's more competition in this market. Do you think that that's in any way fair? I do, but I actually, I will reassess my statement about this being a boring hearing for another particular moment. Um, yeah. So it, back when, in 2010, Bill Nelson was in Congress, and uh, he was one of the key architects of a piece of legislation that created uh, the rocket that NASA is working on today for going to the moon. It's called SLS. Um, it is incredibly over budget, incredibly over schedule. It is the classic like failed government project, I would say. Um, I think it, it is it is derisively nicknamed the Senate launch system. Exactly, and because it, was, it is it is a massive boondoggle that is are getting a lot of private contractors paid and is already hilariously out of date in terms of the technology compared to the stuff that Blue Origin and SpaceX is doing. Exactly. And it is it is the Voltron of the military industrial complex, as you were getting at. You know, the, the main part is made by Boeing. The top part's made by Lockheed. The side boosters are made by Northrop Grumman. It is, you know, it checks all the boxes there. In 2010, when he was putting that together, he was saying, you know, we don't want to take any budget and put it towards the commercial interests that are trying to fly people to space, like just happened uh, in 2020. And he was a big proponent of, you know, keep doing it the way my daddy's built rockets and his dad built rockets. And uh, this hearing today, he was there getting questioned by uh, an old Senator Hutchinson, who was the other key architect at this time. And they both, you know, took some time to grandstand and take credit for supporting that commercial industry uh, back when they were in Congress, because now it has worked out. So they did not, you know, they're doing a little revisionism in these hearings and saying, yeah. well, we were there in Congress and we actually, our names were on the funding lines that uh, we historically underfunded these programs. But eventually, look at that. They're the creme de la creme of space today. And uh, he did take a moment to take credit for that and show that he was open to embracing it because it's a winner. And that's the thing that I think, you know, 
yes, they like the old way of doing things, but at a certain point, when you start to stack up achievements in this new commercial private company driven way of doing things in space, it's hard to hold that off forever, especially when you see the achievements stacking up. And on the other side, you see delays and overruns and everything bad that you don't want to be associated with stack up on the other side of that equation. So even more than, you know, whatever corruption and greed, I might totally unfairly want to read into the motivations of former Senator Bill Nelson. You're telling me that that will be trumped by a bureaucrat and politician's desire to stand next to a blue ribbon prize pig. There is nothing that he would like better than to stand on the launch tower at Kennedy Space Center as humans go back to the moon uh, under Bill Nelson's NASA. And I do think there's a certain, uh, you know, they are egomaniacs, so that is certainly a factor, but there's also an unstoppable force here. You know, it was easy in 2010 to say the SpaceX isn't going to get this together. They barely make that rocket fly. They are now flying a reusable rocket every like week and a half, basically. They've returned, yeah. you know, they've launched hundreds of Falcon 9s. They are launching the heaviest launch vehicle that exists in the world today. They are the largest satellite operator in the world by a factor of six or seven. Uh, and now they're, you know, contracted to launch a bunch of national security payloads. They are launching all of our GPS satellites. They are the premier launch provider for crew to the ISS and crew to orbit generally from the U.S. right now. They take all the cargo to the ISS with some help on the other contract from Northrop Grumman. They are the premier space company of today's era and potentially ever. If they stack up a couple of more achievements, it'll be inarguable. I would say it's arguable today that they are the greatest space company that has existed. So that is an unstoppable force. And whatever political wrangling that might happen within Congress, there's not a lot that they can do about that when so much of this is private funding and private interests driving these innovations. SpaceX is headed up by Elon Musk. Elon Musk is a controversial figure on the internet and specifically kind of in our culture, much of which he courts directly. Does that really matter in this game, though, in in, in the world of uh, government contracts? Like, does it matter that he shows up smoking weed on Joe Rogan? <laughs> well, that one did matter for a little bit. That, that kicked off like a series of, OK, let's investigate SpaceX and see if they're unsafe. I don't know if they thought everyone was you know, smoking weed on the factory floor or something like that. So there's times at which it, it rustles against the people that, you know, have the decision making power. Um, overall, does it matter? I think it only matters as much as they want to get involved in the lobbying and the rubbing shoulders with these people. Um, SpaceX is very friendly with the you know D- Department of Defense here in the U.S. Uh, they talk up their launch services all the time. They have a lot of their launch manifest that is you know coming from that area of the industry. So they have to be friendly to it. But um, you know, overall, what these people want is to get their satellites into space for a good price and safely every time. And if you can do that, they're going to overlook what they need to overlook, just like they did in the early aughts, as I was talking about, when Boeing and Lockheed were doing corporate espionage. And they said, whatever, just work together and we'll keep launching the satellites. <laughs> so if corporate espionage between the two biggest defense contractors in the country was not enough to stop them smoking weed on Joe Rogan in 2021 or whatever it was, 2020, not a big deal. All right, uh, let's get into this moon mission because that is obviously something that's going to be a massive, massive, massive news event when it happens. Can you spell out what this mission is and who all the players are? Because uh, I think SpaceX got most of the headlines, but they're not even the one that's going to put them into orbit. Yeah, so this is the Artemis program is the, the headline name, which I think is a great name. Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. So it was good branding by the previous administration at NASA. Um, this is SLS is the the primary workhorse to launch crews into space. Uh, that's going to launch the Orion capsule that's built by Lockheed Martin. Um, there's supposed to be a flight coming up later this year. It'll probably be next year at the earliest. Uh, and eventually that would culminate in a lunar landing where that SLS rocket would launch this capsule into lunar orbit. SpaceX would meet it there with with its next generation Starship vehicle, which is an incredibly huge vehicle. Uh, you can, if you have not seen photos of this, you might want to check out what they're doing in Southern Texas. Not too long of a drive from you, I guess now. Uh, it, it is a weird architecture because you have, you know, this old spacey looking rocket that is going to meet up with a giant spaceship that has been refueled by several other giant spaceships and eventually culminate in uh, the landing on the surface right now scheduled for 2024. That'll never stick. You know, we're looking later in the 2020s, uh, something beyond that, depending on how the funding comes in. Now, the award for that lander was pretty shocking. They picked SpaceX alone. 
what it was going into that was a competition between three different organizations. It was SpaceX. Uh, it was a company called Dynetics. And then there was this conglomeration of companies that Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos's company, was leading. And that, that included the old Spacey crew, uh, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, uh, Draper Labs. They were going to be building this interesting looking lander that has all these different pieces. And those three landers were competing for the contract to much in the same way that SpaceX competed to take crews up to the ISS, take crews down to the lunar surface. It was expected that that would result in two landers being chosen and then they would compete against each other in the next couple of years. Um, NASA requested about three and a half billion dollars last year in the budget. They got about eight hundred and fifty million dollars. So not even a quarter of the money that uh, they requested for this lander. And that made them reassess some things. What I was expecting was that they would still pick two landers and say, well, we'll just stretch this out a little bit. Each of you will get a little bit of funding. You're not going you know, crazy on developing this thing. We're just going to push these concepts forward and then we'll push our deadline back four years. That's the way that they've always done it. But instead, I yeah. think they made a very aggressive decision here saying, well, SpaceX says they can do it for $3 billion. We've got enough to cover that between now and 2024. We're going to pick them alone and see what happens. So they're very aggressive saying, we are dedicated to getting the moon with the money that Congress has given us already, and that is projected to come our way. And if Congress doesn't like that because they want to see other competitors in there, they're going to have to send some more money our way. So that's fascinating, because you would suspect that, uh, you know, between Jeff Bezos and the military industrial complex, those would be the people with the lobbyists to get the money if, if they were not going to get it. The, the, the other thing that I read was that SpaceX was very low compared to the other two bids that they were that like they were at three billion and then the other bids came in north of 10. Yeah, it was like five and 10 billion or something like that. But the other big part of it is that these uh, contracts are seen as public private partnerships. So NASA expects to see investment internally in your program as well. SpaceX is going to be committing over fa over half the funding to this. So if you think it's a $3 billion offer, they're putting in more than $3 billion of their own money, which is evident if you're looking at what they're doing in Southern Texas, like I was mentioning, they're dumping hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in today already. Um, and I think that's a big part as well. NASA knows with SpaceX putting so much money in, they've effectively doubled their budget uh, without Congress batting an eye. And that certainly does uh, turn up the ears of some of these uh, congressional members that are in powerful positions in different hearings and or in different committees. Um, but at the same same stage, like, you know, this is not the same SpaceX before. They do spend millions of dollars on lobbying. They are heavily invested in California yeah. and Texas and Florida and Washington State. They have some serious firepower right now, uh, and they have a serious track record. All these other companies are still working on stuff. Their stuff is late. SpaceX, as I said before, is the premier space company in the country today, in the world today, potentially ever. So you're coming in with that much experience on the line. Uh, and it's important to note that the head of the Human Exploration Department of NASA was the head of the crew program that SpaceX was running to launch crews to the ISS. She was on the NASA side of that and has recently escalated to the head of the Human Exploration Directorate overall. And so she knows this is a company that I can rely on. They have the executives that I like working with. They now know how to fly people to space. And all of that added up to them winning this sole source in what I thought was maybe the most shocking announcement of the last five years of NASA policy. Just that they went with SpaceX alone. SpaceX alone, because their whole st their whole storyline since uh, you know the shuttle era ended was that we're going to do this commercially. We're going to have two competitors. They're going to compete. In the case of the crew launches, we keep talking about how SpaceX is launching crew. That's because Boeing's is about a year and a half, probably two to three years late right now. They are not flying people until yeah. sometime middle of next year, uh, based on the current schedule. So you know you've got this example of it working because you picked two, but only one worked out, but you're still good because one of them worked out. So that has been their main like PR line for so long uh, to now say, uh, you know what? We don't only have the money for one. We're just going to go with one and we're going to go for it. It's an aggressive move. It puts a lot of pressure back on Congress because Congress is going to say, hey, we'd really like this to be competitive. And NASA's going to say, we would too, but we don't have the money for that. One last question, and then we'll get you out of here, Anthony. Space Force was probably the other big dividing line in terms of space uh, uh, as a topic in politics. Where is Where does that stand, and how does that affect uh, NASA's missions? 
So I'm personally kind of bummed with how Space Force turned out because I did see a very big reason for Space Force to exist. And for context, Space Force is an idea that's been around for decades. You know, it was revived by the Trump White House. But even a couple years before that, there was the idea percolating from the same members of Congress that the Trump White House worked with um, to create Space Force generally. So it's been around for a while. And the idea is take all of the Air Force parts of space and pull them out and make them their own branch because they deserve it. You know, just the same way the Air Force was part of the Army in World War II, space is now very much its own thing. We need to extract it from the Air Force. And in my opinion, I think that was useful because in, when the Air Force got into tough budgetary times or when there was new leaders being chosen, it was always the plane people that won those arguments, and it was never the space people. And they kind of are stifled in the structure. Um, so I was really hoping that Space Force would be pulled out as its own entity so that they would have a seat at the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They would be able to have a seat at the highest level tables of policymaking. Instead, it became something like the Marine Corps, which is technically within the Navy. So it it is its own thing, but it reports up through the Air Force still. Um, so it's really less dramatic than I think a lot of people want it to be. It's rebranding yeah. all these different portions that already exist. It is a net you know, zero change other than the bureaucratic overhead in Washington, which is very few people because the whole branch is, you know, barely 10,000 people. Um, so it's a very small branch. It's just excising these from the Air Force. It's taking the Air Force base name off and putting Space Force Station on front. So uh, it's it's happening. It's slow. There's a lot of competing interests to be the one that is acquiring launch vehicles or acquiring satellites. So there's some, you know, territorial wrangling right now within the Space Force, but um, it's it's really, I don't want to say it's not a big deal because it is a big deal, but um, in terms of what it could have been, it's a very minor tweak about the structure of these things. All right. Uh, Main Engine Cutoff is the podcast hosted by Anthony Colangelo. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, man. This was great. Thanks, Justin. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. This episode was edited by Brett Stewart. If you would like to uh, uh, follow uh, Anthony Colangelo, our guest, if you'd like to tell him thank you for doing the show, you can do so by going to px3guest.com. One last thing out the door, South Korean President Moon Jae-in criticized former President Trump's attempt to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula, telling the New York Times he beat around the bush and failed with North Korea. Uh, specifically, he failed to pull it through. Quote, I hope that Biden will go down as a historic president that has achieved substantive and irreversible progress for the complete denuclearization and peace settlement on the Korean Peninsula, Moon told the Times. So, a little, uh, a little, a little smack talk from the South Korean president to Trump. You can always email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. Our Twitch, where we do live streams Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, is at px3live.com. You can get our newsletter, px3newsletter.com. And our podcast, the one that you're listening to, can be shared with friends and family at px3podcast.com. If you'd like merch of this show, if you'd like our COVID shots equals body shots, t-shirt and tank top you can head to politicsmerch.com if you'd like to support us directly you can hit up my paypal paypal.me slash pay jury you can go to our cash app px3 cash is our handle there or you can be one of our venmo buccaneers our handle there is justin dash young dash 20. If you want to send anything to our uh, P.O. Box, it is P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, zip code 78715. Again, P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. And I would like to issue a massive, massive thank you to Kyle from Hawaii, who christened, who blessed our new P.O. Box 
by sending me a note for a dollar of silver. I didn't even know that this thing existed, but I now have a note for $1 worth of silver. Just beautiful. And of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. The $3 tier gives you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these folks on the Titanic $10 tier. That, of course, is including Headphones Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, the Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley Stephen, Kathy Mack, Zombie Doc, D Really, Methuselah, Honeythuckle, The Jen, Middle Age Mike, Cujo.com Junkie, Calamity Zap, D Laser, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Utah Jimmy Montana, Appraisers Are Awesome, Snuffies, Off Route 44, Miranda Janelle, Jenny Colby, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Brad, Charles, Archie, David, Olin, and Angela, DL, Richard, just another pilot, Frozen Summers, J Pink, and Andrew. One more time, if you want to get on their level, you go to takepoliticsseriously.com and sign up at the $10 tier. I hope you guys have a really, really good weekend. Uh, We're actually going to have our first guest into the house. I'm going to be, I'm very excited about that. I'm excited to be getting back into things. God, I can't wait until our first live show. I'm counting down the days until we do a live show. Because I am so jazzed to meet all of you. I'm so jazzed to see all of you. Anyway, till next time. This is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, reminding you that some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares to talk about all Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.